The topic that I'm going to talk about now is one that is reproductive anatomy and physiology. I think it's a very important one for pastors to understand because very often people will come and complain to the pastor that they're having some marital difficulties and when he starts to get into the situation he begins to realize, oh my, uh, this is a sexual problem uh, and they sometimes don't know what to do. Uh, sometimes we have uh, changes in, in the pattern of behavior of particularly women in the menopause and, 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 and various things that, that it's good for you to understand. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through very briefly the anatomy and physiology of the female reproductive tract and then the male anatomy and physiology very quickly just so that we can have an overview of this because I think it's very important for you as pastors, as health ministry people to understand what the basic functions are. And as Adventists, so often when we talk about sex, we say, sex? Oh, not sex here. We're Adventists, you know. Well, that's just a, 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 an ostrich reaction to a reality of life. So I'm going to start talking, my objectives, uh, we always have it, it, it have to go through the objectives, is that you understand the process of reproduction, and I want to outline the essential reproductive parts and understand the function of those parts. I'm going to go through it rather quickly just so that you'll understand. Males and females as embryos look exactly the same. In fact, if you take a five-week embryo or a six-week embryo, you cannot tell that that's a male or that's a female. It's only as there starts to be the changes that will differentiate. And it seems that the, that the apparatus, if we even dissect an embryo, the female precursors and the male precursors, they are both present in an embryo, either a male embryo or a female embryo. And in fact, a male who fails to secrete testosterone and those male-type substances will look just like a female. And that's why we can sometimes have a, a girl born, but her genetics are masculine. So she's a male, she's an XY, but she has not developed a penis and a scrotum, and we call it feminizing testes. That was the earlier name, a feminizing testes. What it really is, is a failure. It's a hydroxylation failure. Just one enzyme is not doing its job properly, converting one substance, 25-dehydroxytestosterone, uh, into testosterone. That enzyme is missing, and that individual will come out looking like a female. And of course, people complain if they're particularly athletic and they grow a little taller, and then they say they shouldn't be allowed to run in the Olympics as a female. There was a South African uh, person that you was, was running, and there was a lot of confusion about that. In reality, their advantage is probably very slight because they're not producing testosterone like the male, but it causes a lot of problems. The absence of testosterone or the testicular substances that permit persistence of the, of the female characteristics internally and the lack of stimulation externally results in the default anatomical, external anatomical picture of the female because the male is an exaggerated, overstimulated 
basic embryological precursor of what looks like female. All right. Now, the female anatomy and function has a twofold objective. The first objective is to produce an ovum. It has to produce an ovum that can be met by the spermatozoa if we're going to have a baby. The second, it has to be able to nurture the fertilized ovum. I should have put in the third. The third thing that it has to do, of course, is expel the matured product of uh, that process. Now, in embryo, there are two tracts of tissue that are called Mullerian tracts. These, I'm going to go over it quickly, but it'll be in your... These are two columns of cells that are on the back wall of the, of the, of, of the uh, in, in, uh, abdominal cavity in, in the developing embryo. And it is in these two tracts that they, they form the fallopian tubes on the ends, but as they fuse in the midline, that's where the uterus will develop, and the upper two-thirds of the vagina will also develop from that Mullerian tract. They are on the back wall of the abdomen, and the fused parts, as I've said, give part there. Now, the ovaries don't come from the malarian system. The ovaries come from germ cells, which are at the back of the yolk sac, which is, we're not going to go into all of this embryo, and they migrate. They migrate across the dorsum of the abdominal cavity and come together as a cluster of germ cells. This happens in both the male and the female. In the female, they come together and form the ovaries right here at the sides in the back of the malarian system. And it is these germ cells collected together in the organ called the ovary that will produce the eggs. Now, I will talk about how the testes happen in, in the next section. Now, these cells, these cells, there are in these cells, uh, they are... This, this slide doesn't... We don't, we've done that already. These, these, these ovaries, eggs, uh, ovary collection of egg cells, there are about 400,000 of them. That, that there, are, there are about uh, 400,000 uh, of these egg cells left at the time of puberty. When a baby is born, there are about 1.2 million of these cells in between the two ovaries. But they die out. They die out with the passage of time, so that at puberty, there will be two to four hundred of these egg cells, germ cells, present in the ovary. It is this understanding, the finite number of egg cells, that actually determines the reproductive life of a woman. Because once these egg cells have been depleted, she comes to the end of her reproductive cycle. So her reproductive cycle has nothing to do with, um, you know, uh, with her, her vitality. It has to do with how many. It's a numerical problem. Now, here we have the egg cell. This is the egg cell here. I hope you can see it. As you look at the egg cell, inside the egg cell is the nucleus. Now, this nucleus contains how many chromosomes? No. This is an oocyte. That's why I asked the question. It contains 23 chromosomes, right? Because it's going to get the other 23 from the sperm, all right? Now, this egg cell, look where, my, look where the little red pointer is going. This is the egg cell. See this? But it is surrounded by other cells. These cells that surround this egg cell are called 
the granulocytes, the granular cells. Why are they granular? Well, look at them. They've got little granules. And you see how they've got the little granules? These cells are going to produce estrogen. And then in the second half of the cycle, they're going to be changed and will produce both estrogen and progesterone. So it is these courtier cells that are taking care of the maturation of the egg cell. Each month, there comes from the pituitary gland, we're talking hormone system, they come from the pituitary gland, two hormones. The one hormone that is going all the time is called a follicle-stimulating hormone. And it is stimulating this follicle. This, the whole thing, is called a follicle. It's stimulating these cells. And these cells around the egg cell, they, they start to produce estrogen. Estrogen, ethanol, estradiol, which is the two, two, two hydroxyl groups, uh, estradiol will then stimulate the production of fluid in and around this particular follicle. As it stimulates the fluid, it stimulates also the production of receptors. The estrogen stimulates more estrogen receptors. So the rich get richer, that is the follicle that is receiving the most stimulation and producing the most estrogen. It starts to run ahead of the other 14, 15 the, uh, follicles that might have been stimulated. So that by the time we come to ovulation, which is usually about day 14, we find that there is one clear winner, or maybe there are two, but one or two clear winners that are winning this race to be able to say, take my egg. At that point, about 14 days, this estrogen that is being secreted now into the bloodstream is also stimulating the pituitary. And the pituitary is building up, building up, building up a store of the second hormone called luteinizing hormone. And there comes a slight dip as the estrogen levels rise and as the lesion rise. The, 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 then it comes to a point that this follicle maybe is faltering just a little bit because it's stimulated to its maximum point, and it just falters a little bit in the production of its estrogen. And it seems that that little dip in the production of the estrogen probably stimulates the release of that pent-up FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, and the follicle-stimulating hormone goes, comes down in a peak. If you look at the hormones, and we'll see the picture of it later, there is this massive surge of luteinizing hormone, and that successfully causes this oocyte change, and the egg is extruded from the fluid that has been built, built up there so that it now kicks out the egg, and the egg gets into the, egg gets into the fallopian tube. Of course, there are tissues like blood vessels. There are various other uh, supporting cells that are giving blood supply. Now, the, the, are we all right? I'm going too fast, eh? The only thing is that you are, I am not a doctor. I don't find the correct words. All right, all right, yes. Well, if, if you better stop me down. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do male and female. I'm putting the two lectures together. So, but if, if you don't understand, but I'm just giving you an overview. You just have to get the overview. The thing is, at day 14, 
in most cycles, in the usual cycle, the egg is released. Now this fits in with the, the laws in the Bible that say the woman begins to menstruate. She usually menstruates five days. And then it dribbles and dribbles and maybe it stops, but after five, after a week, she'll be clean. The bleeding has stopped, usually. Then the Mosaic law said, wait five days, uh, seven days. So she waited seven days after she was clean. On that seventh day, traditional Orthodox Jewish people will take a white glove and they will test in the vagina to see if there's any evidence of blood. Assuming that it is now perfectly clear, and this is important if you're going to minister with Jewish people, as I had to many Jewish people, women in my office, you, you, you check and there's no blood. And she's gone seven days. So she started, she menstruated five days, maybe it took a day to just clean it up, five, six days. So now another seven days, she's about day 13. At this time, she now presents herself to the synagogue, and in the synagogue they have a special bath where the women will come and undergo a ritual bath of clean cleansing. It's called a mikvah. It's important for you to know this. Oh yes, Orthodox, Orthodox, Ju Orthodox Jewish people. They still go to the synagogue and have this ritualized bath, the mikvah. Now she is no longer unclean. So now that she is clean, she's going to go back home. Her husband has not been allowed to touch her from the moment she started to menstruate. So now for two weeks, her husband has had to stay separate. He can't sleep touching her in bed. He has to sleep separate from her. He has to stay away from her. And so the pent-up sexual uh, feeling and pent-up sexual desire is such, she comes home from the mikvah and he says to her, tonight's the night, my dear, you see? Okay? And that happens on what day? About day 14, which is precisely when the egg is released. And the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, all right? So you can see when he says that, that it means he was making provision in those instructions for fertility. Now, the egg is no longer in that follicle. Remember I showed you the picture of the follicle, no longer in the follicle, but there is a change takes place in the follicle because now the luteinizing hormone makes those granulosa cells become rich in cholesterol and they become yellowish in appearance. That's why we say luteal because it's got, it means yellowish. And those cells now start to produce estrogen and progesterone. It's very important that these things are taking place because you see the uterus. This is the organ that is going to receive the egg. Now, in the first 14 days when the estrogen levels are rising, the estrogen is working on the lining cells here of the uterus. You see this little lining here? This is called the endometrium. And the estrogen stimulates the endometrium. It proliferates. It grows thicker and thicker. It is growing 
deeper and richer. Now it is grown to quite a level. So at day 14, it is quite grown, but it's not ready for the fertilized egg. So the egg has been released from the ovary. It comes into the fallopian tube, and it's going to take about five or six days for it to traverse the fallopian tube before it will come to the uterus. In that period of five or six days, the ovary is now producing the estrogen, which is a fertilizer for the lining of the uterus, but it's also producing progesterone. And the progesterone is going to function and create in the lining a secretory lining. Let me just draw for you what's going to happen. The, the lining of the uterus is getting... If this is the, the basic lining, we'll say it's about like this, this big. It gradually, as we go through to day 14, it is growing deeper and deeper as the time goes by from day one, which is the end of the menstruation. So at this point, the egg comes out. Here's the egg being released. At that time, we have estrogen, which is, we'll call it E2, is being stimulating this growth. Now, at this point, we have, in addition to the E2, we now have added progesterone. Why do we have progesterone? Because the ovary has been luteinized under LH hormone. So now we have estrogen and progesterone. What the progesterone does is the progesterone starts to make these glands start to be more curly. And so we now have a very curly set of glands and blood vessels. And if we look at the cells, if we look at the cells, these cells that are in this lining, we start to see that they become full of glycogen. Glucose starts to collect in the cells so that this becomes a sweet, vascular, thick bed. And so here we are. We come, and as we come now, here's day 14. We come to perhaps day, um, if, we, if we say six days, day 20, 19 or 20. So day 19 or 20, the egg has traversed through the fallopian tube and is ready to be implanted in the lining. And then we don't see a period. Why do we not see a period? Because as this egg cell develops, and over the next three or four days, it itself starts to produce another hormone called human chorionic gonadotrophin. And this hormone functions just like the pituitary stimulating hormone and goes back to the ovary, now from the pregnancy, and says, don't stop making estrogen and progesterone, I'm in here. See, that's human chorionic gonadotrophin is saying that message to the ovary. And so the ovary says, okay, and it keeps producing estrogen and progesterone, especially for the first 12 weeks of the pregnancy until such time as the placenta, which is developed from this tissue of the developing pregnancy, is large enough to be producing its own progesterone and its own hormones to keep the whole cycle going. Now, if the woman does not get pregnant, 
then this feedback mechanism that I'm talking to you about here, going back to, does not happen. And at this point, the follicles here, they begin to fatigue, and the levels of pituitary hormone start to drop because the estrogen levels are raised. As they drop in the feedback mechanism, so this ceases to function, and the lining of the uterus, no longer getting the stimulation of estrogen and progesterone, it starts to break up. Now, of course, the bleeding here is out of curlicue vessels. So when a person has menstruation following ovulation, her period, the flow of the period, is usually a very sluggish, slow, uh, regular flow. If this is a young girl who has not yet ovulating, but she's got estrogen and she didn't ovulate, she didn't create the progesterone, you will find that she now is bleeding from straight arteries, so her blood tends to be bright red and be clotting. So many young girls, just before they become regular, they have very heavy periods. You may remember that if you were young. And as you come to the menopause and ovulation starts to be less regular and less predictable, we get anovulatory cycles, that cycles without an egg, and we don't get this progesterone, so the menstruation in the menopause may be very heavy. And a lot of m women in the menopause come to the doctor and say, Doctor, I'm flooding. I'm having this very, very heavy bleeding. So you see, central to the function of menstruation and the whole thing is ovulation. And the relationship between the ovum and the pituitary is what is dictating sometimes the music that is going to be played by the uterus. So in the early part, when she's establishing it, in the later part, when it is faltering, we see menstrual problems. Now, when all those egg cells are finally depleted, there will be no more estrogen. There will be no more progesterone. The periods will stop. We call that the menopause. The pituitary hormones will actually start to rise. And if we want to measure hormones, we see that the pituitary hormones are sky high, but there are no more follicles left in the ovary. And so there is no response. So there I very quickly, very uh, rapidly uh, tried to go over with you how the female reproductive system is working. Now maybe there are a few other things that I should cover just to be sure. You know, uh, people uh, need to understand the external anatomy. The labia minora are the highly sensitive lips of the vulva. This is where sexual excitation can take place. Uh, the ure urethra comes just inside there. This is the opening to the vagina. It's very important that we realize also the clitoris is the, sec se is the very sensitive organ for sexual stimulation. And people can have all kinds of problems with infections, different kinds of, uh, of problems of the female anatomy there in the vulva. The vagina itself, the vagina is, uh, is, is, a, is a tube that goes in to the, to the uterus, to the cervix there. That too, postmenopausally, will become thinner because the estrogen also stimulates that lining. When it becomes thinner, it may become more painful to have intercourse. As men, you need to understand this. If you're having 
problems with, with couples, you need to be able to explain this to them. Maybe a lubricant is required, and sometimes even a little estrogen cream applied locally will not necessarily have a big systemic effect, but may be able to help urinary symptoms that can come because the urethra is there, or can help symptoms uh, that may be of atrophy and narrowing of the vagina, and the vagina may be tearing a little bit during intercourse. It can become painful. So uh, it's important for you just to know some of these things. Now for us to look at the male side of the thing, we need to also understand uh, some of the other things. Male, and uh, yes, okay, you can ask the question. Well, it may depend on the number of cells that they had in their ovary at birth and at puberty. She, each cycle, she loses up to 20 of those eggs each cycle. And so if she's, if she is, uh, What do they say? Yeah. Now the male, the male reproductive system is just as complicated and just as intricate as the female. Although people always ask, why do we always use contraception for the woman and not for the male? The real reason is that the female is producing one, or at the most, two eggs a cycle. Those are running in the race. Remember I said those are follicles. But actual eggs that reach maturity and are released, ovulated, one or two. Okay? The other 18 are also rams. They, they die out, but they don't actually get laid. You know, they're eggs that are not laid. So, so they're not released. They don't, they don't come as such. Now, male, the male system is different. The male reproductive system is dependent upon there being the production of sperm. Here, we want to tell you to understand the outline of the embryological development, to have sufficient knowledge to understand the male function, and to provide an understanding to understand common diseases of the male. So, the beginning of life, look, I have the same picture as I had with the female anatomy, because you can't tell the difference. And in the beginning, the fertilization process that gave rise to it being male was whether it had an X, Y, or a chromosome. We did that the other day, so you know it's an X chromosome or a Y. It's the, if it's a male, to be a male, we have to have an XY. That means we can, when we divide the cell, we can provide in a sperm an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. And whether or not there will be a boy or a girl child depends which sperm, the one with a Y or the one with an X, fertilizes the egg. This morning in worship, were you in worship this morning? You heard her talk about the woman who said her husband said, if you can't provide me with a male, I will go and find another woman, see if she can. It's not the woman, it's the guy, you see. The problem is that the guy was not shooting male sperm. He was, but probably not enough. Now, usually, there are about 106 males born for every 100 females, infants. Why is that so? Because without that extra dose of X chromosomal material, 
the males seem to be more vulnerable. Women tolerate the extremes of cold and stress, and actually, probably, if there was a hundred-mile race, the winners would not be men, it would be women, because they ha will have greater long-term endurance. And so, in order that, the, that there should be equal numbers at the age of maybe 18 to 22, then there have to be 106 males born for every 100 females, because the males are more likely not to survive to 20. So we find 106 to 100, at age eight, 18 to, or say at age 20, we find 1 to 1, 100 to 100, because there has been a greater, or disproportionately greater loss of males. Now there are problems. There are problems that have come because of male preference. In countries such as China, where they say, one couple can only have one child, Remember they've said that? If you have more than a child, we're going to tax you more. We're going to make a lot of problems. So abortion has become a way that they control just one child sometimes. But what do they do? They want to have male children, not female children. So the process of detecting if it's a male or a female before it's delivered has led to abortion of more female children. It's led to the fact that female children little infants are not looked after as well as males. So that today it is calculated there are 32 million more male children and young men in China, 32 more than there are females. So you might read, as I did in the newspaper the other day, there was a raiding party that went from China into Borneo, into, into, into Borneo, Sarawak, and they kidnapped 67 young females and took them back to be wives because the village was having difficulty in finding wives for the young men. There are enormous repercussions going to happen from that. So basically, it's best that we leave it to, to normal processes to determine the balance of the genders between the races. There are all kinds of implications of that male preference that we could, we're not talking about that today. But here is a, an X chromosome, and here is the Y chromosome. And you see there's more, chromatic, more uh, genetic material here, and therefore a greater protection, a greater uh, opportunity for, uh, say, this arm to protect against that arm being deficient if, 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 the, if it had divided. The male chromosome does, however, dictate that the gonad will become a testicle. It carries the genes that dictate that the gonad, which is gathering the germ cells from the back of the, of the, of the abdomen, bring them all together, that it will become a testicle rather than an ovary. And the, the, the Y chromosome determines the way that that, uh, <coughs> that that gonad develops, and it develops into a system that produces sperm. Here is the testicles. And this testicle in the scrotum began in the back wall of the abdomen. The testicle migrated around the abdomen, came to the inguinal canal, and then migrated through the abdominal wall in what is called the inguinal canal, and then the testicles dropped down into the scrotal sac. Why should the testes be in a scrotal sac? Because spermatogenesis takes place better at one or two degrees 
cooler than the body temperature. Now you think about these processes and you say, it just happened by chance. You know, we are just not thinking straight if we talk like that. It didn't happen by chance. Now the sperm are produced in the scrotal sac and they collect in the epididymis. Here they are bathed with the various secretions of the epididymis and they undergo processes of maturation. They travel and they come up the vas deferens and they come to about here, a little place, there is a thing called a seminal vesicle. The seminal vesicle, here we see it, is the bladder for sperm. Now some people think that when a male ejaculates, he ejaculates pure sperm. Not so. He ejaculates a fluid that includes a lot of prostatic fluid from the prostate gland, which also helps this, these sperm to be able to be what we call cap uh, undergo capacitance. They get capacity to be able to actually penetrate the egg wall, the ovum wall. So there is a wonderful correlation and relationship between prostatic fluids and the fructose in there that's going to help the sperm to swim and to mature them and to take off the acrosomes so that they can actually penetrate uh, that gonad. Now how many sperm is a male producing every day? He is probably producing about 300 million sperm per day. And this is going on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It is a continuous stream of life, if you wish. And, and these, these cells are tiny, tiny cells. All a spermatozoa looks like is a little tiny, tiny cell that's got a little head. The head is the 23 chromosomes, and the magic of the sperm is in its tail. Its tail has these uh, contractile columns in the tail that create a whip-like movement, and the whip-like movement makes it swim better than an Olympic swimmer. Why do I say it swims better than an Olympic swimmer? Because in proportion to its size, which is invisible to the naked eye, it is going to swim from the cervix through the uterus up the fallopian tube in a matter of about 15 minutes. So our young people who think that they can have sex and maybe do a douche, they don't understand the wonderful nature of the sperm. I'll always remember seeing in the anatomy museum and the forensic medicine museum, it was actually, at Edinburgh University, a di beautiful dissection of a person, a female, who had died for some other reason. She had an intact hymen, which meant that the hymen had not been broken by intercourse, but there, sitting up the vagina, was the, and then a cross-section of the uterus, there was a, an intact pregnancy situated above the 
Hyman. So obviously what had happened in that particular situation, she had been saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to have sex, but she had allowed sexual intimacy and an ejaculation of the semen onto the perineum, and those little beggars, those little swimmers, had swim, done a, a little hop jump and a pole vault over the hymen, up the vagina, and they found their way there. So we must tell our young people that, you know, you've got to be really careful. This is not something you play with. Some people... Yeah, the, well, some people think, you see, that as long as they don't have actual intromission, then it's not sex. In fact, in Africa, that has been a big problem because some of the young people say, I want to stay a virgin, so they have anal sex, thinking that they are, you know, serving, preserving their virginity and that they are not having a problem. I once had a young lady come to me and she said to me, do you think oral sex is bad because does that really break the commandment if we just have oral sex? I said, well, you know, Jesus said, whosoever looketh and lusteth on a woman is guilty of adultery. And I think you would be a very peculiar person having oral sex who wasn't thinking all these sexual things which are adulterous thoughts. And adultery is not of the anatomical position of two organs, male or female. It's in your head, see? And so it is a mental and a spiritual uh, situation. Anyhow, here's the, here's the seminiferous tubule. You see, these cells here are dividing, and, and as they divide, then the little sperm, they are released from these cells. These are like the bedrock production of the, of the spermatozoa. That's what a spermatozoa looks like. It's got this head, it's got the body, which is full of energy. This is the energy that provides the energy for the whipping of the tail. And the tail, if you do, if we look at the tail, the tail is the one that puts it through. Now there are Sertoli cells. The Sertoli cells nourish those young spermatogonia. So this is like the breast milk for the baby as far as spermatogonia. They, they, they produce uh, substances to nourish the spermatogonia. And the spermatogonia divide into spermatocytes and then they, then they are dividing by mitos mitosis into sperm. So let's forget that. That's, that's a little bit Testosterone is produced in the male testes by Leydig cells. So you see, there is attached in the gonad the hormone production and also the, the egg cell production, be it a sperm or be it an egg cell. The hormones and the egg cell, they are intimately tied into these what we call gonads, ovaries or testicles. The only difference between testosterone and ethylestradiol is a hydroxyl group, an OH group. When they told Maurice Chevalier that, he said, ah, but vive la différence, huh? So, you see, <laughs> it is important that there be a difference. There's not as much difference between us, male and female, as we might think there is. Semen, then, as I told you, composes sperm, seminal fluid, prostatic fluid, and we call the whole lot semen. And this is what the sperm looks like in size relative to the ovary. It looks almost like a picture from space, doesn't it? Here is the sperm, it's come up this great long track, and it finds the egg. Now, there's another wonder of reproduction. An egg cell may be surrounded by 300, 400, 500 of these sperm. I told you that they had to undergo capacitance to be able to penetrate the egg cell wall. 
And so now they've got their heads on there and the tails are whipping. They're trying to get in there. One egg, one sperm gets into the egg. It's as though he pulls the trigger. Katoom! And the shell of the egg swells. And as it swells, all the other sperm, you're out of luck, boys. You will not be able to penetrate this egg cell wall because the winner has been declared. Now, I tell you these things. I tell you these things because these are miracles. Every single one of these is a miracle. You're a winner. I'm a winner. We're all winners. Tomorrow I'll tell you you're all winners. I'll tell you the chances of you being you. It's a miracle. Yeah. 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 See? We are, all of us, miracles. And, and, and part of, the under, of going through this complexity, and it's almost time to finish because it, it, time is up, is that you could understand what it is. Now, there are so many other glands that correlate. Yes. Ah, remember we talked about those wonderful reticular endothelial cells. We talked about those tissue macrophages, those tissue cells that were eating bacteria and then injecting them. Not only do they eat bacteria, they eat any cells that are dying or dead. They clean up. They are the garbage brigade of the body. And so those macrophages take care of those spermatozoa. So, in other words, we have a vacuum cleaner system built in as well to take care of those kind of things. Now, in sexual excitation, there is a lubricatory fluid that is released to enable intercourse to take place. In the male, this is released from small glands at the base of the penis called Cowper's glands. The equivalent in the female is a Bartholin gland. This is the lubrication that takes care and lets there be this, uh, this uh, arrangement. The male anatomy, then, is again a wonderful thing. Here we have the uh, cross-section of the testicle where we are producing the spermatozoa. This is the epididymis where they are collecting together. This is the vas deferens where they go up. But in order for these to be delivered to the female, there has to be an erection take place in the male organ. And we hear a lot about, you can't watch TV, even when it's children, it's if you've got ED, erectile dysfunction. Well, what is happening is that these are what we call erectile or uh, erectile tissue. These are vascular bundles of tissue. For an erection to take place, there has to be adequate blood flow, so blood vessels have to be good. We can't have arteriosclerotic blood vessels providing enough blood. So older people who get arteriosclerosis, one of the things that protects them against the heart attack is that there's not enough blood flowing to the penis either, so you know they don't get a good erection because they've not got enough blood flowing to their heart to sustain them through the activity. So it's, it's all kind of, it works out, you know, sustains, pr prolongs the life. But what happens is there is a constriction there's a constriction of the veins 
that are draining these, these tissues. So they swell because the blood is not going away. Now that sounds, he's laughing at this, he doesn't know I'm going to tell him another miracle. This sounds really good. So what they do is they say, well I'm getting old, it's not working, so we're going to take some uh, Viagra, or I'm going to take some, uh, what's the other name of the, uh, uh, Cialis. Or, or, so, now what do those things do? Well you see, the agent that causes the constriction has to be removed. It is a chemical and it has to be neutralized by yet a second chemical. So if you think about it, there had to be, at the same time as reproduction was being thought of as being a function, there had to be not just one chance that took place, there had to be two, there had to be a substance that would cause constriction of those veins under the sexual stimulation, and there had to be also another hormone produced that would destroy the first substance, otherwise the males would walk around with erections for all their lives, right? You'd have to have an erection that never went away. So you have two enzymes that are working together in order to control even the erection. Just think a little bit about the complexity of everything I've said. The complexity of what I've said happening in a female and the complexity of what I've said happening in a male and putting that together so it functions as a reproductive process of humans, think about this and say to yourself how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. And then give a little thought to this. If God spent as much time ensuring the adequacy of this human reproductive process, how much we ought to value it and cherish it, and when he says to us, you know, do not commit adultery, all he is trying to do for us as individuals is to bless us with the beauty of what he has created. I don't have time to tell you all the horrible diseases that happen when we are not living according to that divine mandate. I remember seeing a man with a great ulcerating lesion on his penis. And in order to, he said, doctor, it's not responding. It was, it was a lymphogranuloma venereum and he, he required a special medication for it. He, he came in very frightened. He says, what's going to happen? I said, I don't know, I hope we'll be able to cure this because this could just rot your penis right off. You know, what a cruel doctor. And he's thinking, <gasps> fortunately we were able to give him antibiotics and, and took care of the situation, but we gave him enough of a fright. We said, be careful where you put that organ, all right, you see. It's important for us to value this. Syphilis, you know, syphilis used to be the HIV and AIDS of today because before penicillin came along, we couldn't cure syphilis. 
people used to have syphilis and it caused all sorts of things. I remember seeing as a student a photographic display of a man and he developed a, an aortic aneurysm, a syphilitic aortic aneurysm. And as the aneurysm grew, it eroded through the sternum, this bone on his chest. And, and there were pictures of this growing and growing and growing. And here there was a lump in the man's chest from an aortic aneurysm caused by syphilis. And then there was just one little page that said on, I forget the date, let's say January 23, 1931, this man took a penknife and stabbed this pulsatile mass, which must have been very painful. So he took his penknife, you know, and he put it in there, and he just went, <clears throat> and that ruptured, <laughs> blood all over, and within minutes, he was dead. God has spent care, given care, in making us the people that we are. We owe it to him to take care commensurate with the care with which we are made. Now I tell you this, so I hope when you talk to young people, you have a little more insight. Maybe read your notes, get it, make it so that you understand this. So when young people come and talk to you, like that girl with two little pink tails, and she's about 17, and she's asking me about oral sex, and her mother probably <laughs> wouldn't even mention the word, we have to learn to be real and realistic and be where the children are today. We can't be like my father who said to me, I'm so glad, Alan, that you're going to go to medical school. They will teach you all about sex. That was my sex education. He didn't know at the very time that he told me that I'd already received a sex lesson from Jimmy up the street who had told me as we were play kids on the mat, all sorts of things that he should have been telling me right from the start. We have, we have a curriculum framework on human sexuality that goes from age one right the way through until maturity and you would do well to avail yourself of that. I think we still have some copies of that in French and in, in English. I'm afraid we don't have it in Spanish. But we could send it to you. In, and it is a framework as to how we should be talking about sexuality to our children. My wife said to me, you're the obstetrician, you can talk to them. I said, what do you mean I'm talking to them? I'm not talking to my daughter. She said, oh yes, you can talk to your daughter. So I had to sit down and talk with my daughter about sexuality. You know, my daughter always comes to me and says, Dad, I so appreciated that you were able to talk to me about sexuality. I took a rose, you know, a rosebud. I said, this is a beautiful flower, but it's not yet bloomed. And then I tore it open and I ripped it open. I said, you know, you must wait for maturity, for your full womanhood to blossom. And then in marriage, you will be a beautiful rose. But if you start pulling it apart, you're going to tear the beauty and never experience what it really can be, the fullness of the pleasure and the joy of sexuality. Come tomorrow, I'm talking about sexuality tomorrow. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons 
please visit www.audioverse.org.